Welcome to uh, the first in our annual series of uh, speakers on the theme of Islam and democracy. Uh, this year's first speaker is Jason Brownlee, who is Assistant <laughs> Professor of uh, Government and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of uh, Texas. Um, he's both a comparativist and an IR uh, person. Uh, this uh, center is known more as a center for IR, but in recent years, comparativists have tried to take it over to the extent to which we can. Uh, and I note that um, Jason teaches courses both in IR, in particular um, on U.S. foreign policy and Mideast politics, as well as graduate seminars on democratization and modern Islamic movements. Uh, Jason is the author of Authoritarianism in an Age of Democratization, uh, which is this book here, published uh, by, by I'm, I'm shilling for the book uh, now, published by Cambridge University Press uh, in uh, 2007, which is a revised version of his doctoral dissertation at uh, Princeton. And it's really a terrific, uh, he's, he's an Egyptian specialist at the core of the core, maybe. But uh, this book is really a comparison of uh, Egypt, uh, Malaysia, Iran, and uh, the Philippines. And it's a very clever analysis of why it is the case that some authoritarian uh, systems become democratic and others don't, based upon an argument about uh, the coherence of party systems and how they contain uh, enough members of the elite uh, so that it's very difficult to mount uh, movement against authoritarianism. So a uh, very innovative, imaginative uh, argument, which uh, I think also happens to describe these systems uh, accurately. Um, Jason has published articles in major political science journals. Uh, uh, he's got an enviable uh, vita that includes uh, articles in uh, world politics, comparative politics, and studies in comparative international uh, development. His article, Hereditary Succession in Modern Democracies, was recognized by the Comparative Democratization section of the American Political Science Association as the best article of uh, 2007. He's now working on uh, two large research projects. Uh, the first addresses major cases of U.S. occupation abroad, and we haven't talked about that yet. Uh, that presumably includes Iraq, uh, uh, right? But does it also go back to Japan and Germany? Uh, that's, those are the cases of occupation abroad. Uh, that looks like a fascinating uh, book uh, project. And the second looks comparatively at local challenges uh, to the current Egyptian uh, regime. And so this is the foundation uh, as uh, an Egyptian specialist. Uh, this afternoon, Jason will speak on reconsidering presidential elections in the Arab world. Uh, welcome, Jason. Okay, I want to thank you, Bill. I want to thank uh, Bill for inviting me and bringing me here today. This is the start of, uh, well, it's not the start. It's kind of the middle of a new project, and so I really look forward to all of your responses and reactions. What I'm doing, and this kind of relates to the second project that um, Professor Little just described, this idea of looking at local challenges to authority in Egypt. And this paper is a, is a bridge between the work I was doing on elections and authoritarianism and what I'm going to be doing on kind of social movements and contentious collective action in Egypt. And so uh, what I want to do today is talk about how we think of elections in the Middle East and, and whether the kind of conventional wisdom that we have about elections in the Middle East makes sense. And so first I'm going to 
discuss the main debate about elections that's in the comparative politics literature, which is a debate about how elections affect authoritarianism, whether they weaken authoritarian regimes, whether they bring about democratization. And then from there, I'm going to move into the Middle East, where scholars are not talking about elections and democratization. They're talking about elections performing other functions, performing other kind of political roles. And then finally, I'll turn to recent presidential elections, uh, specifically in Egypt, Yemen, Algeria, and Tunisia, and talk about whether the the profile of these elections fits our understanding of of, uh, the points raised in in number two. Uh, So that's kind of where I'm going to be going. There's a, a sort of famous joke about a guy who was found kind of in the middle of the evening, stumbling around underneath a lamppost, kind of scrambling around on his knees, apparently looking for something. Passerby walks up and says, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm, I'm looking for my keys. So the question follows, oh, did you, did you drop them here? He said, no, I dropped them in the alley over there across the street. Said, oh, well, why are you looking here? Well, the light is so much better under the lamppost. And Lisa Anderson uh, reminds us of that, that joke and, and its insight in an article she wrote a couple of years ago called Searching Where the Light Shines. Lisa Anderson is a senior scholar of comparative politics in the Middle East. And with that article, she cautions us against making that, that mistake of looking only where the problems are most well lit and most well illuminated. And I think it's fair to say that in American political science, there is no better lit sort of institution, no event on which the light shines more brightly than elections. And so we risk, when we study elections, particularly when we're studying elections in developing countries, we risk making the mistake of, of searching for our keys where the light is really good. And if we step back a second and recall that we're interested in understanding power and kind of following power and, and scrutinizing power wherever it is, we realize that our keys may not be in that particular area, that the answers we're seeking may not be with elections and we may need to look elsewhere. And so this paper is really a kind of plausibility probe to think about the ways in which we've been considering elections and whether in that very brightly lit area things are making sense as we, as we think they, they ought to. And then beyond that to see whether the, the real keys for our work lie in other areas. And uh, the major way that people are talking about elections in comparative politics and the broader literature that you'll find in journals like Comparative Political Studies, American Journal of Political Science, the major question that's been on people's minds for the past few years is, do elections strengthen dictatorships or do they bring about their demise? And the quote here about elections being the death of dictatorships comes from Sam Huntington in 1991. In the third wave, he mentions Marcos's fate in the Philippines. Uh, he mentions uh, Pinochet and other cases where elections seem to backfire on those who are holding them. And that continues to be a question that occupies a lot of scholars. But by the early years of the 21st century, there was an awareness that, in many cases, elections were being held 
without any signs of instability. They were being held regularly and in some cases were actually kind of paraded by regimes and they didn't seem to be challenging those regimes. And this led to a literature on so-called hybrid regimes where rulers were combining the facets of Republican rule and democracy, things like elections and having a legislature, with repression and other tools of the authoritarian toolkit. And so we had terms such as competitive authoritarianism, electoral authoritarianism, and that literature is, is pretty well advanced. That was originally, though, a kind of taxonomic literature. It was a way of labeling regimes and categorizing them and talking about their emergence rather than their ultimate demise or the, kind of their ultimate fate. And so in a way, it, it wasn't exactly addressing Huntington's question. And what has followed is a very interesting literature on actually the, que the question of change. So where are these regimes uh, going and what, what is their propensity to democratize? And so we've, got, we've had a number of studies in that regard. And it's almost become a kind of democratic peace debate for people who work on authoritarianism. There are those who say elections are a Pandora's box. They just open up the way for the opposition to make demands on the regime that it's not going to be able to meet. Or they open up opportunities for the opposition that it will exploit in a way the incumbents didn't anticipate. And on the other side, there are those who say, no, elections are a survival strategy. They release pressure. They provide legitimacy. They may help to draw international aid to the regime. And so in that sense, they actually help to prolong the lifespan of the regime. And when I was crafting this slide, I was thinking at the time that the tendency of recent evidence has been running against Huntington's idea that elections are the death of dictatorship. I, I was thinking that the tendency is for people to argue that elections prolong the lifespan of regimes. But this morning I was uh, reviewing page proofs for something, and an article that's about to come out, and I recalled that actually it's, it's more like an equal split. Uh, because where you have Jaworski and Gandhi and Magaloni uh, talking about elections and legislatures sustaining regimes, you have Stefan Lindbergh saying elections make things more democratic. Hedanius and Tehrell argued that multi-party regimes are less likely to last than others. So it, it, the jury is still kind of out, actually. And along with this debate, I'll just mention briefly that that there are those, I'm one of them, but there are many others who kind of think that this debate is, is missing something else and it's missing the possibility that elections may not really in themselves be an independent variable and that instead they may reflect other, other factors that are actually more causally important. My uh, kind of argument in, in the book that uh, Professor Little mentioned is that when we, when we come in and we look at elections, like the Philippines 1986, we're really joining a, a process in one of its last stages. And that can, it's very exciting, and of course it'll be front page news the next day, but it's really like coming into the final scenes of a five-act play. 
uh, and if you would, if you just assume that the, the actors on the scene are the most important, you're actually missing the background that really may have propelled events. And there are many theories that would, that would kind of conform with this approach and, and suggest that really the action is taking place earlier. The argument I put forward is that it's much more about elite coalitions, whether they stay together, whether they break apart, that determines whether or not the elections are going to become competitive. Because if elites, rulers, whether they're in um, the Philippines or Myanmar or some other case, if they're not able to keep significant influential leaders on their side, then it's very likely those elites will defect to the opposition and help to create a more even playing field. And elections become just one of the ways that new balance of power between the ruling elite and the opposition plays out. But it doesn't have to be the only way. You could also imagine elites defecting and being part of a revolution or being part of some uh, successful protest movement. So when we're looking at elections and when we see the opposition succeeding in a place like the Philippines, uh, it's not so much that the election was being held, because if it was, we could just expect that other presidents around the world who held elections, other autocratic presidents like Marcus who held elections, would suffer the same fate. And we see that actually, more often than not, it's, it's the opposite. They, they manage to win the elections, and the opposition uh, is the group that loses. So in general, I've kind of, in my work, thought that we need to look at other variables rather than elections if we actually want to kind of explain what makes the difference, if we want to explain why Marcos lost and Mahathir stayed in power, for example. Uh, more recently, I've, I just have a second finding. It's generally, it generally conforms with the other two points. Um, this is a work that will be published in the American Journal of Political Science uh, this summer. I tested Barbara Getty's regime types, which are the, the tripartite typology of military regimes, single-party regimes, and personal regimes. But then I also tested, I measured and tested the hybrid regime types of electoral authoritarianism and competitive authoritarianism. And I had sort of one uh, significant finding in terms of the hypotheses that I looked at. And that was that these new hybrid regime types didn't make it more likely for a regime to lose power. But if a regime lost power, if that coalition had broken down, if it was more likely that the next regime would be an electoral democracy if the regime that had just fallen had been a competitive electoral uh, or competitive authoritarian regime. So basically what that means is that if you see cases where the opposition is performing fairly well in elections under authoritarian circumstances, that bodes well that the next regime will be one in which there's rotation of power between competing power parties. And what I say in the article is that this is a lot like what Dancor Rustow described decades ago about a hot family feud and the need for there to be some balance of power between competing forces, or kind of like what Robert Dahl described in terms of increasing levels of contestation being a, a portent of democracy. So there's a kind of legacy effect of high levels of competition under authoritarianism being tied to healthy levels of competition under electoral democracy. And I'll be glad to, to talk more about that during the discussion. 
But now let me move on to, from this broad picture, a big picture of comparative politics and, and theories of elections to the Middle East in particular. When we're looking at elections in the Middle East and North Africa, we're not holding much, we're not harboring much hope that the elections are going to lead to democratization or that they're going to lead to the kinds of outcomes that Huntington uh, had studied. Instead, the tendency is to figure that the elections matter, because if they didn't matter, they wouldn't be held. And then we need to figure out why they matter, how they matter. So what is it that they're doing? And in that regard, uh, there are many theories. There are many ideas about what role elections can play in Middle East politics. But in the paper, I home in on three groups, which I connect to the works of recent authors. So one of them is theories of clientelism. Basically, the idea that people participate in elections because they're going to get patronage, they're going to get connected to government officials who can provide them services or material benefits. And so there's a very basic kind of economic incentive for participating in elections. I could have also, I have Rene Lamarchand and Eleanor Stokar referenced here. I could also put V.O. Key up here, because that was his argument about Southern politics and why people were participating in regimes that were just completely dominated by the Democratic Party, essentially a, a single-party system during the period he looked at. Another argument is coming from Dan Brumberg and others is that elections do provide a survival strategy because they allow the regime to expand its coalition and bring in members of the opposition. And so it's a way of placating uh, viable opposition movements. So that's different from clientelism. It's, it's, the elections are aiming at something uh, a little bit different, aiming at a, a different part of the population. And then finally, the kind of most recent of these theories, and in some ways maybe the most novel, is the theory that comes from uh, one of your future uh, participants in this series, Lisa Wadeen's argument. Lisa Wadeen looked at elections in Yemen, and she found that people didn't uh, really believe that the elections were a credible competitive contest, and that the regime didn't even bother trying to make them look credible. In fact, its aim was, was pretty much the opposite. It wanted to demonstrate a kind of invincibility, that the opposition's struggle was futile, and at the moment of elections, produce a drama that created an aura of stateness. So it was acting like a state during the moment of elections. And this wasn't a, a narrative or that, this wasn't a narrative that actually people really believed and subscribed to, um, but it did succeed in presenting this image, albeit fleeting, of what the regime was capable of doing. And um, it's kind of my uh, simplification of Wadeen's theory. It's, it's uh, quite thoughtful and intriguing, and I'm sure when she's here she could do a better job of kind of elaborating on it, but I wanted to include it as one of the, the three main theories that we can kind of consider. And what I do in the paper is think about these three arguments and note that on the face of it, all three of them could be considered right. If they point toward regime continuity, then after these elections, we end up with the same leaders in power that we had before. But that is a kind of functionalist affirmation of the theories. And it's, and it's 
it doesn't avoid the risk that this is just a spurious correlation, that we're just, we know there's going to be continuity. We say it's a survival strategy, and so on the face of it, it looks like a survival strategy. What we need to do is go a little bit deeper and do something that we ask our graduate students to, to do in their theory testing, which is to figure out the observable implications of these accounts. So what are the other phenomenon and other empirical trends that would go along with clientelism or that would go along with regimes acting like a state and see if those characteristics are there as well. So we want to look at the moment of elections and gather, kind of broaden our evidence beyond just the outcome itself, which we know is going to go for the incumbent. And so, for example, if elections are a major source of patronage, we should expect a lot of voters will want to take part. We should expect high levels of, of turnout. If elections are meant to demonstrate how invulnerable the regime is, we should expect it to really have quite a, an insurmountable margin of victory or an, over, over the opposition. So that's, that's the direction of this paper in terms of a plausibility probe. Before turning to particular presidential elections, though, I want to say... Uh, a little bit about elections in the Middle East overall, because it, it, it could be surprising that in a region which is characterized by authoritarian political systems, we have quite a lot of scholars, actually quite a lot of comparativists who are looking at elections. In fact, when we compare the Middle East to other regions, fewer elections in terms of elections for the top power holders in office, fewer elections are really taking place. This paper draws on a data set that I collected last summer on executive elections around the world between 1950 and 2008. So basically, for about 190 countries, I looked at whether an election was taking place, and if it was taking place, I collected certain data on, on the election, in particular, the margin of victory between the first place finisher and the second place finisher, which I'll get to in a moment. But this data at a very basic level just enabled me to compare over time what was happening in terms of the, just the holding of elections. So did governments at least move to being electoral authoritarian? Did they at least allow voters to participate in some exercise when they could ex express a preference about the top power holders in, in government? So this graph just shows over uh, about three and a half decades, regional trends from Sub-Saharan Africa, South and Central Asia, Pacific and East Asia, and the Middle East and North Africa, in terms of the number of countries in the region holding contested executive elections. And the, maybe the most interesting aspect of this chart is to note how the trends in Sub-Saharan Africa and Middle East and North Africa departed dramatically over the course of a few decades. So initially, 13 .2, in 1973 and 1974, when this begins, 13.2% of countries in Sub-Saharan Africa were holding contested executive elections. And then a little less than that, 10.5% in the Middle East and North Africa. But by last year, Sub-Saharan Africa was seven-eighths of countries, 87.8% of countries in sub-Saharan Africa were holding contested executive elections, while in Middle East and North Africa it was still 
only a third of, of countries. And so what that means is, unlike Sub-Saharan Africa, where single-party dictatorships at least move to be multi-party authoritarian regimes, or monarchies became constitutional monarchies, and maybe in, in some of the cases up here that, that's occurred. Uh, in the Middle East and North Africa, those trends didn't take place with, to such a great extent. So in particular, monarchies did not become constitutional monarchies, which is, was surprising for some because for a long while there have been arguments by comparativists of the Middle East that the monarchies would be the more likely cases for democratization because legislatures provided a source for power sharing and incumbents gradually relinquishing power while transitioning to a, a, a symbolic role where they could be head of state but not head of government. That's an argument that Michael Herb uh, developed in his book on the monarchies. And while the, the rest of Michael's book, I think, is, is excellent for talking about elite coalitions within monarchies, I think that part and the conclusion hasn't been empirically substantiated. So we've seen that the monarchies have just simply not transitioned into multi-party competition. Uh, they haven't transitioned from monarchies to constitutional monarchies. And then also we have some single-party states in the region like Syria, which have not implemented multi-candidate presidential elections. Now what we have seen, and what's drawn so much attention, are cases like the ones I'm, I'm going to discuss, Yemen, Algeria, Tunisia, and Egypt, which implemented multi-candidate presidential elections, and thus went from being kind of exclusionary authoritarian regimes to electoral authoritarian regimes. So in that sense, they became uh, kind of normal authoritarian regimes in the terms that we're thinking of in the early 21st century. It's worth noting, though, that when, for example, Hosni Mubarak instituted multi-candidate elections in 2005, and he got a lot of attention from policymakers in the United States and also journalists in the United States, he was really catching up with a trend in which the region overall still lags and he was sort of catching up with the trend toward electoral authoritarianism that Sub-Saharan Africa had already been experiencing to a much greater extent in the 1990s. So with, with all this in mind, um, I focused on the examples of contested presidential elections in the Middle East because I think those are the ones that will seem most typical and most informative to comparativists who are looking at other regions. And oh, so okay, let me just let me just say a moment about point number two here, which I didn't bring up. If elections are supposed to be a mechanism for regime survival, we would expect more countries in the Middle East to be introducing multi-candidate elections. Or another way of putting it is, in terms of this plausibility proof, and just kind of thinking about the evidence that we see and processing it and seeing what it means, it's interesting that there are so many durable regimes in the Middle East that have not even introduced multi-candidate presidential elections or multi-candidate executive elections. And so in that sense, there seems to be within the Middle East that regional trend, some evidence that there are at least other mechanisms for keeping regimes in power than multi-candidate executive elections. And so 
even while a lot of regimes are becoming electoral authoritarian and they're joining this trend toward hybrid regimes, there are other ways in which authority is being reproduced in a more exclusionary manner. I think the other two points here that I, I basically covered in my remarks. So moving now from the regional trend to the specific cases of, of Egypt, Algeria, Tunisia, and Yemen, In the data set that I collected last summer, the main variable of interest, the main variable where I thought I was contributing something to the prior studies, was to look at the actual election outcomes, regardless of regime type, and take note of the winner's share and the runner, the, the share of votes that the runner-up got. Either the, the winning candidate in a presidential election or the winning party and runner-up party in a parliamentary election. And the reason there were a couple of reasons why I, I did this. The first was that I kind of had a hunch that the winner's share, even in contexts where the elections were not free and fair, would still provide some information. In single-party systems, it's typical, it's kind of notorious, for rulers to get 99% of the vote. It's kind of implausibly large margin. Um, in you know, what people would say is a kind of Soviet-style outcome. In multi-party regimes, there also seems to be a kind of number that's accepted as uh, what rulers should get, even, and, and that's around 88%. I've noticed over the past few years that 88 is the new 99. That in uh, Egypt, Uzbekistan, uh, I think uh, Turkmenistan or Kyrgyzstan, I have to double check, rulers got around 88%. And uh, I think there's something, you know, it doesn't have to be exactly 88%, but when you get in that range, you're basically signaling hegemony while also making a gesture toward pluralism. You're kind of showing that, yeah, there's some opposition, but there's not really a viable uh, challenge here. There's not a candidate who lost who's going to earn from this election national name recognition and, and gain in prominence and perhaps become more of a threat the next time around. Uh, so I collected, oh, okay, so that, that's one reason why I wanted to actually take note of, of vote shares, even in elections that weren't free and fair. The other issue, which is a little more technical, uh, is that I think we're going to, in comparative politics, we're going to increasingly run into problems with our dominant regime types and the data sets that we've been using over and over again. This stems from a lot of issues, but the main issue is that there's a lot of retrospective coding going on, which means that an event happens in 2000, and then we go back and say the country was democratic or authoritarian for prior decades. And that, that raises a host of methodological and conceptual issues, which I, I could get into more during the question and answer. But I think it's going to be more important, it's going to be increasingly important with regimes that are difficult to classify categorically using contemporary data, places like Georgia last year. What would you call Georgia? Was that democratic, authoritarian? Well, let's wait until Saakashvili leaves power, and then we'll look back and, and code the regime in one category or another. Rather than doing that, I think we're going to need to use data that are available from the year to make claims about the state of the regime in a particular year. And one way of doing that is to look at election results 
while remaining agnostic about whether we want to call the, the country democratic or authoritarian. So with those two considerations in mind, I developed this measure of margin of victory. And the margin of victory is simply measured as the, the disparity or the difference between what the winner got and what the second place finisher got. And this reveals a lot. So for example, even if someone was just completely unaware of the surrounding uh, conditions of voting in the elections in the United States and Egypt, in the most recent presidential elections, they would see that the U.S. seemed to have a much more competitive election. The margin of victory in the U.S. in 2008 was 7%. In Egypt, the runner-up got 7%. And the margin of victory was, was 81%. Um, to some extent, this information could be reflected if we just measured the winner's share of the vote. So Mubarak got 88% of the vote in 2005, uh, and that, that would tell us a lot. But there are cases where the winner's share of the vote on its own could mislead us. And one example would be Afghanistan. So basically, you have a winner who doesn't get much more in terms of his share than what Barack Obama got. But the, the real story is the gap between what he got and what the next candidate got. So Karzai's election suggests a level of uh, kind of dominance that, wouldn't, that doesn't bode well for elections in Afghanistan later this year. The, the guy who got 16% um, is probably unlikely to get 40% uh, you know, or 51% this year. And so that's why I, I think the margin of victory gives us more information than just the winner's share on its own. Okay, so, so getting back from that to the main question. Recognizing that we're going to see regime continuity. What, uh, in what other ways does the evidence from these elections support the main theories that I brought up. Clientelism, survival strategy, acting like a state. One of the reasons why it's kind of uh, tricky to make judgments from case studies about elections in non-democratic contexts is we don't have a sense for what normal looks like. like. What is a normal margin of victory? What is a margin of victory in cases where the incumbent eventually lost power? What's the level of turnout in cases that are heavily authoritarian? And one of the things that, this, um, that I try to do in this paper is just provide us some sense, some kind of broader perspective on what the, the range of variation we're, we're talking about is. And so this next figure that I put up is a histogram of margin of victory in presidential contests outside of Europe and outside of uh, North America. So I'm not looking at kind of the Western developed states. I'm looking at late, late developers. And that gave me 185 presidential elections during this period. And so we're, you're going to see a distribution of margin of victory with the most recent Arab presidential elections, except for the Algerian one that took place last week. Um, it's sort of how they line up in terms of the broader trend. So the, uh, the curved line is a normal distribution curve that's transposed onto the distribution of, mar of outcomes. And we can see that even if we didn't want to make any claim about how free and fair the elections were, even if we didn't take one look at a, 
election monitor report or a human rights watch report, we could simply claim, we could accurately claim or accurately note that elections in Yemen, Algeria, Egypt, and Tunisia in these cases ranked 138th, 159th, 165th, and 173rd in competitive, in competitiveness. So these were not normal elections in terms of competition. They were far removed from the, the kind of competitive end of the spectrum where most of the cases uh, kind of cluster. And, and basically, if you started looking at the data set and looking at the countries that scored similarly, you would see that Mubarak in 2005 is in the company of Stroessner in Paraguay and Diem in South Vietnam. So he's, he's in kind of not the sort of company that we would expect the New York Times to be praising um, in terms of uh, elections being held. Uh, Bouteflika in Algeria was uh, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, president of Algeria, was reelected last week with a margin of victory um, much like what he got in 2004. Um, he, w when the results were announced at the Ministry of Interior, I, I was watching the coverage on Al Jazeera, they announced the results and they said he got 90.24%. And there was a sort of pause from the room. There wasn't actually immediate uh, applause. And it was almost like there was a chuckle like going through the room. And I, I rewound it and I listened again. So the Minister of Interior had to announce it twice. 90.24%, pause in the room, 90.24%, then people clapped. Um, but it was like, you know, that, that sort of informal norm, about 88% or something. You know, going over 90, it's really um, kind of blatantly obvious that this is not, not a, a, a democratic contest in any way. So this gives us, this gives us some sense about competition. And I think it's useful for considering what we would expect or what we'd be inclined to call a democratic contest or a competitive contest. Because if we think about the Schumpeterian definition of democracy, uh, it's, it's supposed to be a competitive struggle for the people's vote. And it's clear that in these cases, just based on the, the other data, that these rulers are not engaging in a competitive struggle for the people's vote. And so if Gamal Mubarak, for example, won an election in Egypt in 2011, and he got 60% more uh, than the second place finisher, I think it would be accurate to say that was not a, a competitive struggle for the people's vote based on the universe of election data that we're able to observe since 1950. And the implications of, of these data are that they, they generally would seem to support all three uh, theories. Uh, certainly, these are not elections where the opposition stands a fair chance or stands a good chance of winning. So they're not elections that are performing the function of rotation of power. And in that sense, they, they do seem to be maybe arenas like what VOK observed in the South, where people could be jockeying for patronage more than really looking to overturn the party in, that's in office. They could also support regime survival by keeping the opposition disadvantaged. And they could, especially in uh, some of these cases, they could definitely seem to exhibit state power and the ability for the regime to act like a state. Yemen was the case that Lisa Wadeen drew upon for her article, Yemen, um, not only in 2006, but earlier. Uh, but it may be really Tunisia 
or, or Algeria these days that exemplifies that, that ability for a regime to really signal that the opposition doesn't have a chance. And then, as I mentioned with the Gamal Mubarak example, there's, provides an empiric, this provides an empiric foundation for addressing questions about democratic elections in the near term. So the, the tendency right now among uh, ruling party officials within Egypt as well as policymakers in, in Washington or officials in the U.S. Embassy in Cairo is to be kind of coy about the chance that Gamal Mubarak will succeed his father and say that we'll support any uh, outcome of a democratic election. Well, there's a, a way of kind of talking about what a democratic election would look like. And, um, and if the Egyptian regime wasn't kind of moving closer to the other side of the, the, kind of the hump of the, uh, the histogram and the distribution, it would be unlikely or not seem really credible to, to claim that it was a democratic election. Okay, now I'm going to move to the, the final aspect of election data that I looked at, and this was turnout. Now, turnout is discussed on a case-by-case basis in the literature on Middle East compared to politics. But again, the tendency is not to look at trends uh, across countries. And so, for example, if you read a study of Egyptian elections in 2005, you'd likely see some discussion comparing turnout levels then to turnout levels in 2000. They were basically similar. This is for legislative elections in Egypt. They're basically similar. There wasn't a great um, change. Uh, but that misses the way in which Egypt may be a kind of normal case of turnout in a broader spectrum of cases, or it may be an outlier. So for data on turnout, I looked to a couple of uh, data sets, IFAS and also Adam Carr's Electoral Archive, which helped me to gather turnout fairly efficiently. However, we, it's important noting, and it's kind of obvious, that data on turnout, just the numbers themselves, are going to be just as unreliable, potentially just as unreliable, as data on the opposition's performance. That is, we shouldn't expect that this is going to be a, a straightforward reflection of how many voters participated. But we can also figure, we can just sort of deduce the bias is pretty much going to go in one direction if it does go in one direction. We should expect, because of the same incentives for holding elections in non-democratic contexts, um, because of those incentives, we should expect that turnout numbers may be inflated, they may be exaggerated, but it probably won't be an undercount. Uh, it's unlikely that regimes are going to actually push the numbers lower than they actually are, because they want to show, if anything, they want to show that this is a, a real contest that in, entails substantial public participation. <laughs> Okay, so what I'm about to put up is a table showing turnout figures for 46 presidential elections from Africa, Middle East, North Africa, and Asia. And what we see here, sort of a lot of numbers up here, but basically there's a kind of normal range in which all but four outliers at the top and four outliers at the bottom fall, and that normal range would be about 45 to 90%. Now, I've indicated with an asterisk those countries that were labeled by Freedom House as an electoral democracy in the given year. Now, we don't have to necessarily think of them as democracies. That, that's irrelevant. But what we can figure is that data from those years may be more reliable because for whatever reason they were more closely monitored. They may be more reliable than data from the other countries. But as it turns out, 
the average turnout figures for the asterisked countries is about the same as the turnout figures for the other countries. So we have this range of 45 to 90 percent, which encompasses most of the cases. Tunisia is a, an outlier, conspicuous outlier at the high end, but uh, and that's maybe that they they inflated the numbers. The more kind of intriguing outlier is number 46, Egypt. So Egypt, which is a country that gets quite a lot of attention in terms of elections, both. Uh, attention about legislative elections and about the most recent presidential election, Egypt has absolutely the lowest turnout of any of these cases. It's half, uh, I mean, it would have to be twice as much, really, to fit into the normal range of turnout. It's uh, well, well below average. And There, okay, so there are a few a few things to think about in terms of this um, this turnout figure. A few things to consider regarding the main three theories: clientelism, survival strategies, and acting like a state. Um, but before I move to that, before I kind of move to the next slide, I just want to make a kind of tangential point about Egypt. Uh, there's a perennial discussion regarding the possible outcome, the hypothetical outcome of a free and fair election in Egypt, and the concern is, or among some, the concern is that the Muslim brothers would sweep into power in a free and fair election. And so Mubarak is kind of holding back uh, that, that surge of, of uh, Islamic activism. I think what this slide suggests and what these figures about turnout suggest, especially if they're an exaggeration or an overcount of levels of turnout, and it's even much less than 22.9%, I think this suggests that if someone asks what would a free and fair election in Egypt look like, the, the responsible answer is we don't have a clue. I mean, there could be, if there's a free and fair election and turnout figures dramatically increased, as one would expect they would if conditions were different, and if we assume that non-voters uh, have different preferences than voters, then the shape of the election may be completely different than prior elections that we've looked at closely. And so I think it's very difficult to, to extrapolate with any credibility from the results of recent Egyptian elections, such as the 2005 parliamentary election, when the Muslim Brothers got 20% of seats in parliament. I think it's very difficult to extrapolate that uh, and from turnout levels that are this low to what a free and fair election might look like when turnout levels could be two or three times as much, and you just have a tremendous influx of millions of Egyptians who've never uh, participated. Okay. Okay, some, uh, what does this mean? How should we interpret this? First, I think it's useful just to note empirically how low turnout is in comparative terms. That certainly the literature within Egypt, the kind of literature in Arabic on elections, talks about this regularly, but it doesn't get a lot of coverage or a lot of attention in the comparative politics literature over in the US. I think there are a few reasons why turnout could be low. Um, you know, maybe the government is underreporting. I don't think that's likely, though. It's more likely that voters are being suppressed to some extent. Voters are being blocked from polling stations. We know that has happened. And I have a colleague who uh, 
tried to vote in the 2005 presidential elections, and actually he was blocked. They found a technicality in his voter registration. He wasn't allowed to vote. Uh, however, voter suppression is not occurring. I mean, at least the impression I have of elections in Egypt is it's not occurring on such a scale that it would chop turnout in half, you know, reduce it from 45% to 22%. Another basic explanation would just be voter disinterest. Uh, just voters are, in, are concerned about other things. They don't see elections as uh, an effective or efficient strategy for pursuing their interest. Now, the thing about both of these factors, voter suppression, voter disinterest, is that they, they both kind of point in the direction of elections not uh, supporting clientelism, or they both point toward other arenas of politics and other arenas in which Egyptians are participating or making demands on the state uh, outside of voting day. That's especially the case when even the officially reported levels of turnout are so low. Regarding other arguments, there may be some support here for, um, or let me back up one step, uh, about the acting like a state argument. This doesn't really seem consistent with Lisa Wadeen's theory, um, though there may be ways that it would work, but if you, it's basically like the emperor parading his new clothes and no one really showing up to take part, no one really showing up to kind of participate in the ritual, participate in the production of power. And so in comparison to turnout, I think turnout rates in Yemen support Lisa Wadeen's argument more strongly. I think in Egypt we could be, uh, we have some evidence that something else may be going on. And then finally about the notion of survival strategies and coalition management. To some extent, elections in Egypt at, at the parliamentary level and maybe another, at other levels as well, uh, represent an opportunity for the government to shake up elites, kind of pick new elites, bring new elites in, exclude other elites that may have fallen out of favor. And to the extent that that's happening, to the extent that there's a kind of orchestrated rearrangement of personnel, then turnout levels should be low, because higher turnout means more unknown voters, more uncertainty for the people who are conducting the elections, and, or conducting in the sense of orchestrating the elections. And so poor, poorly attended elections would support one argument about coalition management, it being kind of like a cabinet shuffle at the national level, and then, or cabinet shuffle at, a, at the legislative level. Uh, but it wouldn't seem to support an argument that the elections are about kind of helping the opposition to let off steam. Because if the opposition was supposed to be letting off steam, then the opposition should really be mobilizing its supporters in greater numbers. And so uh, the elections don't really seem to represent that. I mean, if the idea is you basically bring people into the elections so that they are, their energies are somehow kind of captured and contained and channeled, that doesn't seem to be what's happening because we have at least 80% of the Egyptian electorate that's choosing not to take part on election day. Okay. So now let me just wrap up and move back to the, this issue of the lamppost. So we want to be careful that we're not just looking at elections because that's where the light shines. 
they, in American political science, they are probably the most brightly lit institution, and we should be wary of the risk of doing what, what Lisa Anderson has warned against, which is just thinking that that's where, that's where power is located, that's where the main questions that we're interested in will be answered. Now, if we just looked at regime continuity, we can claim that it'll be a functionist logic. We can claim that the elections support clientelism, or the elections help regimes stay in power by, act, by letting regimes act like states. But we want to do more than that. We want to avoid kind of phony, <coughs> phony correlations and functionalism. And I think in the current literature on comparative politics in the Middle East, there's a gap in the area of implications. There's a, some of these existing theories don't lay out very clearly what implications or what evidence will support their arguments and what evidence will, will uh, refute their arguments. And so in this paper, I'm, tr I'm kind of trying to fill two gaps, and, and it's, that's, there, there are sort of challenges and problems there. And that's definitely an area for future um, research. But even with those caveats, there's initial evidence that provides support for some arguments in some areas and, and challenges others. I think the issue of turnout for me is uh, in Egypt is one of the more intriguing findings of this paper. It directs attention to other areas where people may be engaging in clientelism and patronage. It's not to say that clientelism isn't happening. It's just to say that maybe the other 364 days of the year are more significant for people pursuing patronage and getting government services. Also for state prestige and opposition activism, there may be other venues that are more significant. And my kind of final uh, injunction for, for researchers, researchers looking at Egypt or looking at other cases is when we see other, when we see such large levels of voter abstention and yet we observe activism in other areas, we should be ready to follow Egyptians or, or others into those non-electoral arenas, even when it seems kind of dimly lit and we're going to be kind of fumbling around, uh, stumbling around for a little bit. So thank you all for your attention. I look forward to the discussion. We, uh, we have about 15 minutes uh, for questions, and then I'll let Jason manage his own questions. Yes. Yes, uh, what criteria did you use to include those 46 countries uh, only presidential elections that they held. Uh, why Turkey and Iran was not there? Huh? Uh, that's, uh, okay. Um, yeah, so when you look at margin of victory, actually, there's not a statistically significant difference between parliamentary elections and presidential elections. But for the scope of this paper, just kind of for feasibility and also for conceptual focus, I just wanted to hone in on presidential elections there. When we start getting into implications, I think they're there are aspects of presidential elections that um, uh, that wouldn't carry over to, to indirect <laughs> executive elections. Uh, in Iran, the executive is not subject to a vote. The executive being Supreme Leader Khamenei. So that's why I'm not looking at um, the presidential elections in Iran, because I'm only looking at elections in which the it's a presidential election and actually the president is the ruler. That would be the, so the quick answer. Turkey, a parliamentary system, yeah. Turkey is in, is in the data set, so, yeah. Maybe a second order question, but given the low turnout, I'm assuming it's less than 
Yeah. No, no, no. I think this is given uh, the findings for Egypt. Uh, why does the Egyptian government keep out holding elections? Right, right. Well, this is yeah. This is a great question to think about. But I, I think one of the answers that, and, and I'll bring it up in the next version of this paper, one of the answers that hasn't been talked about enough in the literature is just path dependency and the, the, the tendency for elections to stick around. I mean, just, you know, we talk about keyboards and how keyboards have stuck around. Well, the same thing could happen with elections, even when they're not providing uh, a, a particular kind of political role on a given um, day. And I think there's a tendency, maybe in particular for American, political, American social scientists, to think, okay, elections, they must be doing something for Egypt. Uh, a, a comparativist asked me, a comparativist who doesn't work on the Middle East asked me a few years ago, you know, why do they hold elections? This is so fascinating. Why do they have a legislature? Well, you know, why do they hold soccer games? Why do they have soccer games in Egypt? You know, we don't, and actually there's a lot more public interest in soccer games in Egypt than there are in elections. And it, and it wasn't just being glib. I mean, actually, historically, the sources of soccer games in Egypt are similar to the sources of elections and legislatures, which is they came from Europe. And uh, I think the, the fact that regimes can just continue going through the motions, it's a relatively low-cost affair. And maybe it does something, you know, like, like we, could we could actually ask your question about so many other aspects of Egyptian politics. And I think the fact that we don't says a lot. You know, why does Egypt have a ministry of transportation when it seems to be completely dysfunctional and not do anything? Why does Egypt have, you know, there's so many aspects that are just kind of things governments are expected to do. And I think it, it, there could be very much an aspect of going through the motions. And we're, we're, we may be overstating their causal significance by expecting them to have some kind of uh, contemporary effect and contemporary importance when really it's just about decisions and a particular purpose or goal that was achieved maybe decades earlier. When Sadat, for example, in the 70s, it, it shifted from single-party rule to, to multi-party rule. Long, long answer. Yeah. How large of a role do you think uh, the Islamists uh, winning the elections in uh, Egypt is going to be and uh, how that would how that also affected the turnout with the boycott and all that? And And by Islamists, you mean uh, the Society of Muslim Brothers in particular? Yeah. Levels of turnout have tended to be, they've been this low in elections that the Muslim Brothers have not participated in and in elections the Muslim Brothers have uh, participated in. And I think that says something about the limited reach of the Brothers into the Egyptian electorate, even though compared to other opposition movements, they are uh, the strongest by far. Uh, but I'm not really um, so, and, and I'm not sure if that answers your question. Basically, you're you're thinking that the brothers, their participation or non-participation, explain. Oh, your other question was how much are they a threat? How much are they a threat? One, two yeah. is they they have uh, a lot of social political power in the country. Yeah.
Yeah, their, their tendency is not to boycott. And when they have participated, the rates are not that much different than when they have boycotted. So uh, in terms of a threat to the regime, actually, I think sometimes, because we think in kind of the terminology of the transitions literature and the democratization literature, the, the nature of the Muslim Brothers as an opposition party may be overstated. Because historically, they have actually backed, they've been very close to having power in many cases, and they've backed away from it. And regularly, they decide to be, uh, they shrink back from ad taking adversarial positions or engaging in what could be viable alliances with other opposition and protest movements. So for example, this past um, week, they pledged solidarity with the April 6th movement, but then they didn't actually do anything in the streets. Participation in the April 6th um, kind of day of commemorating uh, protests a year ago were, was very low, and it could have been much, much stronger if the Muslim Brothers had decided to turn out their supporters. So uh, I, I don't consider them, uh, I, I guess I don't really see them as a major threat to, to the regime at this point. I think to some extent their popularity, their popular base may be, in terms of an active popular base, may be overstated. And let me give one more reason why I think that's the case. There's a lot of literature on the Muslim Brothers right now. Um, Josh Stacker of Kent State University has an article on the most recent issue of the Middle East Report drawing on some interviews that he did earlier this year. And the literature is showing that the large number of Brothers supporters tend to be very conservative, um, but actually kind of apolitical. They're much more interested in sort of religious conservatism than policy change. And so you can see those who maybe most like the kind of model of what an op opposition uh, politician should be doing are actually representing a minority of the Muslim Brothers supporters. And those may be the more progressive ones. So you actually end up with the majority or the bulk being more conservative, less politically adversarial. And that's one of the ways that we can explain this historic trend where the Muslim Brothers have definitely been active in Egyptian politics but not so quick to really try to seize power or, or push for you know, changing the regime or overthrowing it. Yeah. yeah. Are you saying that these elections are essentially irrelevant issues of whether this country is democratic or authoritarian? You, you no, if a, country, if a country is experiencing rotation of power between parties, then elections are, are probably the, the institution or the venue where that's going to occur. But in cases where that is not happening, then the question is, what should we study? And how relevant or how significant are elections? And I, my argument would be that in terms of questions of power and how it's being contested and reproduced in Egypt, elections um, may be kind of far down the list of arenas that we should be looking at. Does that? Mm-hmm. Um, right, right, because, <laughs> yeah, then, so then when people want changes, what do they, they do other things besides elections, right? Or they, they, they figure out, okay, 
this party is going to be in power. This party's candidates are going to be the ones that rule. So then we have to put pressure on the government in other ways besides elections. And so I guess presumably uh, a student of uh, Chicago politics these days who wanted to think about how the agenda of city politics changes would, uh, would look at other things besides elections. So yeah, in some cases, the, in some ways the implications would be similar. Uh, yeah, I, so basically the, the paper's critique could be, we could, we could bring the, the critique home sort of to, to think about other, other countries that people are studying where they're fixating on elections and they should be looking elsewhere in terms of how the agenda's being shaped. Yeah, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that point of view. Yeah, Mary. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a, those moments of starting elections would be the ones that we might want to look at um, more carefully in terms of the decision making. So, for example, so Sadat in the 70s, moving from a single party legislature to multi party, there seemed to have be a lot, there seemed to be a couple of calculations. One had to do with external relations with the United States, but the other was about providing a, a system where more religious groups could be uh, balanced against left-wing groups. So there was a kind of domestic calculation there. And then in 2005, in Egypt, again, a combination uh, probably of external factors, some messages from the White House that Egypt should show signs it's moving in a democratic direction, and then domestic calculations about opening up the... Uh, or creating mechanisms for succession in the future where Hosni Mubarak's successor could be deemed as having some um, domestic credibility. Uh, yes? Um, uh, well, first, I'm definitely kind of in line with your idea that we should question the meaning of them. Um, the level of, and, but the levels of repression in authoritarian regimes, there are significant variations. One thing about the Egyptian government is that 
it's been successful at using, there's a, there's a kind of police state that everyone is subject to at some level. But in terms of uh, sort of overt violence, it's been effective at using violence selectively, basically at Egyptians that decide to become politically active and challenge the, the government. And elections, um, those who are participating in elections, in a lot of cases are those who um, are kind of working for the government, going to working in the, the state bureaucracy, for example. And so there is a level of participation by Egyptians who are just sort of kind of going along and getting along. But those opposition activists who are more likely to be repressed may participate in elections or, yeah, there may be some kind of feedback loop in terms of, of violence in other arenas deterring them from participating. Certainly. Right. Well, and there is a concern in Egypt that Mubarak will engage in kind of blanket repression and large-scale detentions like what Sadat did uh, in 1981. Uh, so far, we have not seen that. We have seen lar large amounts of Muslim brothers being detained, um, but the, sort, the, the kind of cases that you're mentioning in terms of um, just the regime shooting people in the streets, to my knowledge, that hasn't occurred in Egypt um, and under uh, Mubarak, in terms of kind of the, what you said, the slaughter that that hasn't happened in Egypt. I mean, there are lots of things that we can talk about that are happening in Egypt that are big problems, but but uh, at least at this point, that hasn't happened. Yes. Oh well. Oh, sorry. Let me come back to you because I'm doing some more. These numbers um, from the turnout to the margin of victory. Um, okay, so your first point, the margin of victory numbers are not good. All right. The question is kind of what can we, when we know that there's been manipulation, and probably the, the ruler didn't exactly get 88%, what margin of victory tells us is that there is a, there's a, it tells us how lopsided the field is. Because if the opposition was more effective, it's likely that they would be able to get their strength, their numbers, represented in the final count. So the margin of victory and the, the election results, as they're reported, are, are kind of reflecting two things. First, the imbalance of power on the ground in terms of the actual popular base of competing factions among the electorate, and the imbalance of power in translating whatever popular base they have into results. But in a lot of cases, these are... We have to think about what, what are these numbers useful for. These are the numbers that we will have in cases that we don't know whether they're democratic or where we're unable, I think, accurately to, or confidently to make a categorical judgment. And what we can do, though, and what I've done in another paper, is relate margin of victory to major outcomes that are interesting to us. So, for example, in regimes where the incumbent party beats the opposition by 40% regularly, um, what does that mean for development? What does that mean for you know, reducing poverty? What does that mean for the chance that the opposition will win a later election? And I found that margin of victory, even with all of the problems that are in these data, 
because it represents the asymmetry of power between the opposition and the incumbents, is a, a strong predictor of whether or not there will be alternation in the next election. And so, for example, in a paper I presented last year, based on the way Saakashvili came into power and how weak the opposition was at that point, the chances of Georgia experiencing alternation of power under Saakashvili are very low. And you can do that for other cases. The chances in Mexico in 2000 were very high because the opposition was gaining even under uh, non-democratic conditions. Now, the, your, second, your other question was about uh, sort of policy implications? Uh, the U.S., they don't yeah. seem, it doesn't seem fair to the citizens of Egypt or, or they can't get change if the government isn't effective or not in their best interest. Does the U.S. have a duty to spread democracy if these elections aren't democratic? Or do we just um, sit and let this happen? Well, I think if the administration was interested in reducing authoritarianism in the Middle East, the first step to, toward doing that would be to stop participating in the authoritarianism. So to stop kind of abetting and aiding the types of human rights abuses that are occurring in places like Egypt. So that would involve a very different relationship with the Egyptian government. It would involve not sending people to Egypt to be tortured, not sending uh, you know, the Attorney General, uh, as occurred with Alberto Gonzalez, not sending the Attorney General of the United States to meet with the Minister of Interior in Egypt. Um, so the first step would be, rather than thinking that America is going to promote democracy in the Middle East, or promote democracy in Egypt, would be first to stop actively helping the regime reproduce itself and engage in these abuses. I think we have to stop there. Thank you uh, very much. Thank you. <laughs> Not liberal enough for some. Yeah, Too liberal for others. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got a very good crowd. <laughs>